For those that remain in the auditorium and are watching online, take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 25. The decorations are amazing. You're right. They're beautiful. Leviticus chapter 25, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 22 this morning. For those that were hoping Scott Campbell would be preaching again this morning, or even Pastor Luke, unfortunately you're stuck with me. It's good to be back. Uh, As Pastor Luke mentioned, thank you so much for allowing us the opportunity to fellowship together with many of our fellowship churches, literally from coast to coast, as well as to be part of the Gospel Coalition Canada uh, Conference. It was very filling, and uh, we are grateful Leviticus chapter 25, verses 1 through 22. When we think about rules, what is the first thing that comes to mind this morning? What is your response to or your relationship with a set of rules and regulations? Love them. Anybody? Favorite thing. All right. I don't think that the word freedom comes to mind when we think about rules and regulations. Words like oppressive, restrictive, these and others may come to mind when we think about rules and regulations, but I doubt what comes first to mind is the reality of freedom. And yet, I hope we have been able to see in our walk through Leviticus that that is precisely what God's law brings us. As we have seen, holiness is not so much a matter of our behavior as it is a matter of our affection. Holiness is not ultimately or exclusively what we do. It is a reflection of who we love. And so, rules, regulations, are not so much about restriction as they are reflective of the rule maker and the rule giver's love. I'm not sure how old you were when you realized that not every family was exactly like yours. Perhaps it was through some cousins or maybe some friends from school and You had your first sleepover or uh, extended interaction with other families and you realized either how weird their family was or how weird your family was and maybe it was a combination of the two. But I can recall not having a very good relationship with and attitude towards the rules and regulations in my home and yet interacting with other families you begin to see some of the realities there and you actually begin to say, hey, actually how our home operates, I kind of like that. I kind of like that better. Of course, we never told mom and dad, but uh, that was over time and the maturation process to be sure. Rules and regulations then, as they come from those who love us, are not designed to restrict us primarily They're not designed to make us frustrated or upset. Their ultimate goal is not our pain and suffering, 
I hope we don't think that our parents stay up late at night after we're in bed drafting new rules to make our lives more miserable. Hey, hon, I got a good one. Come here. <laughs> this is going to be great. Oh, the kids are going to hate this. This is so awesome. I hope we understand that the rules and regulations that we grew up with and that we are now implementing in our homes are for the benefit of those under our care. And so as holiness is not primarily about our behavior, but more so about our affections, so too, God's law is not about restriction and oppression, but much more about freedom and expression of his love for us. And perhaps no other passage demonstrates that so ably as Leviticus chapter 25, because we find herein the year of Jubilee and the Sabbath year. So follow along, if you would, as I read Leviticus chapter 25, verses 1 through 22. Leviticus chapter 25, verses 1 through 22. These are the words of God. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves, and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you. For your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land, all its yield shall be for food. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years, you shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. When each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property, and if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the jubilee, and he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, she'll increase the price, and if the years are few, she'll reduce the price, for it is the number of the crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Therefore you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them, and then you will dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not sow or gather on our crop? I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you'll be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. This is the word of God. And so we see in here, as hopefully we have seen in our walk through the book of Leviticus, the heart of God. These rules and regulations do not stand outside of the context of the one who gives them. They are reflective of the character of the one who gives them. And they are given out of a heart motivation of love, care, and concern, and not out of a heart 
motivation of power and abuse thereof, uh, with the idea of restricting us primarily or taking away all of our fun. And as we come into Leviticus chapter 25 then, we see first of all the Sabbath year and then the introduction of the year of Jubilee. And next Sunday, Pastor Luke will bring us through the rest of this chapter and a lot more of, tease out more of its implications. But here I want us to see then this concept of freedom. Rules and restrictions, regulations, obligations, given from a heart of love, actually bring freedom and not oppression. And I hope we can see this in our walk through Leviticus 1, 25, 1 to 22 this morning. In the first place then we see freedom in God's gracious sovereignty. Freedom in God's gracious sovereignty. Notice in verse 2 then, in the first place, freedom from slavery. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you. What is God reminding the people of Israel of? He's reminding them that they did not always have a land. Their ancestor Abram was nomadic. Land was promised to him, among other things in Genesis 12, but he had not firmly established himself in the land. And all the way down to their father Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel by God, they had some parcels of land, but they didn't have the whole land. And then, of course, because of famine, they go down. They are rescued by their, one of their brothers, Joseph. But then they stay in Egypt for hundreds of years, four to five generations. And then God brings them out of slavery. And when he says, when you come into the land that I give you, remember this. This comes from God's heart of love, but it's a reminder to them of who they used to be and who they now are because of God. God hadn't forgotten them when they were enslaved in Egypt. God was not indifferent to them. They were God's chosen people, loved by him, and their pain and suffering did not remove that reality. And so they're going to come into this land that God is going to give them, and what a land it is. It sent in the 12 spies, one for each of the tribes, and they came back showing that this is indeed a land that flows with milk and honey. This is a good land. God's not giving us sort of the back 40, the arid uh, acreage that nobody wants. This is, a, this is a good land. And as Moses is going to say to the people in Deuteronomy 6, when you come into that land, you're going to have wells that you did not dig. Digging a well in our context is made a little bit easier by technology. Digging a well in that context is very, very difficult. And these wells have already been dug, these vineyards have already been planted, these vines have been planted, these crops have already been uh, planted and harvested for many generations. So they're going to get all of these things handed to them, and all of these blessings are coming their way, all of these things that they do not deserve. And so this Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee is intended to remind the nation of Israel of who they were and who they now are because of God. It is our tendency, in the midst of blessing, to forget the blesser. It is our tendency, when we are given gifts, to focus our attention on those gifts and forget the one who gave us those gifts. And so God is building into the rhythm of their calendar that every seven years, as every seven days, they are to take a rest. And they are to remember who they were 
and who they now are because of God's grace and mercy. And this year then of reflection, this sabbatical year, it's kind of where we get the concept from of sabbaticals, to come aside from the daily routine and the grind and, and all of the, the, the mundane realities and have an entire year, one year every seven, to reflect on God, to worship him, to thank him for who he is and all that he's done. What great freedom there is to remind them of the freedom from their slavery. Notice as well then, in the second place, there's freedom from anxiety. When you come into the land, I give you the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. A couple things here. Our God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. We are very anxious by times, and COVID and Hurricane Fiona and other realities have not reduced our anxiety. And yet God says to his nation, I have your best interest in mind. I love you. And when I define for you every aspect of who you are and how you're supposed to respond to that, how you're supposed to behave, that is not because I hate you. It's not because I desire your life to be miserable. It's because I love you. I know how you are made. I made you. And so I know what's best for you. And so I've made promises to you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to keep you. I, I'm going to bring you into the land. You will be established into the land. Now, it's not going to be easy. There's battles yet to be fought. And perpetual battles, it seems, that continue to need to be fought. But the reality is, I am going to keep my promises to you. And ultimately, all God's promises are found fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so we don't have to worry about God's provision. Will it be there? Which leads to the second sort of subpoint. there is to give the land a full Sabbath takes a lot of trust. I don't know how you feel about your retirement savings, especially now, but it would be very difficult, I think, to cease working one year out of every seven and just trust God to provide. Because essentially, in an agrarian society, this is how they're going to eat and also make a profit. And yet, for a whole year, one year and seven, they're just allowed the land to lie fallow. It is not to be tilled, cultivated, not to spread any fertilizer. Nothing's to be done to the land. It's just to be let sit for an entire year. That takes a lot of trust. And God is calling them to that trust. I love you. I care about you. I am the one who provides for you. Trust me. It is not ultimately your skill, your intellect, your ingenuity that is going to allow you to survive and thrive. It is me, your father. So trust me. Freedom from anxiety. Freedom from control in verses 3 and 4. We love controlling things. We oftentimes, certainly more often than not, believe we are in control of things. That's why it bothers us so much when things happen that are outside of our control. We make plans. We lay them out. They're awesome because we made them. This is an amazing plan. We plan our vacations. We plan our week. We have calendars all over our house. We still forget things, but they're there. We have calendars on our phone. We have notifications. Our phone tells us what we're supposed to be doing. We have plans. 
We like the element, or at least we, we like to think we have this sort of facade of control, and yet the reality is we are not in control. There is one who is, <laughs> and if we are his children, what a comfort that is. That when things happen that are wildly outside of what we are prepared for and what we desire, it is not because God has fallen asleep, is on vacation, doesn't care anymore. These things come in his good hand. He is in control of all things. And so again, to step back from your harvesting, your planting, all of these things, and just let the land lie fallow, and what temptation there may have been in walking through your field, can I just harvest just this row because I'm not sure it's going to be there tomorrow when I come out to pluck some grain. Can I, just this row, Lord. And notice the clear prohibitions. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. This is not to say they can't eat for a year. It's to say they have to trust that the food is going to be there for them. They can eat of the produce of the land, verse 23, uh, and following. But the reality is that they can't gather it in. They can't harvest it. And in fact, God tells them, verses 21 and 22, or in verse 20, the question is, well, what are we going to eat? He says, the harvest yield will be enough for you. But trust me, I am in control. And that's a good thing. You are not in control. And that's a good thing. <laughs> so freedom from control. And also then freedom to trust God. Everyone is going to be provided for. Not just the immediate family, but notice the hired worker, the sojourner, your cattle, the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. What comes in in the sixth year harvest will be enough to sustain you, and what grows on its own, you can certainly eat those things. You just can't harvest it or gather it. You can't hoard it. We love hoarding. If you've ever moved, which is probably everybody in here and watching online, you realize just how much stuff you've accumulated. Now, your first move is probably not as impressive I remember moving from New Brunswick to Ontario and all my wor worldly possessions fit in the back seat of a Dodge K-Car. That's not a lot of stuff. Coming here from Ontario required a 26-foot U-Haul plus. We have a lot of stuff. I remember reading a comedian who said that he and his wife were preparing to move and he s literally watched his wife get a box out of storage that they had not opened since the last move Take all the contents out, repack the box, and retape it to take to the new home. This is, this is the stuff that we have. We, we love our stuff. And so how do we, one year and seven, or in the nation of Israel's context, how would they, one year and seven, and for two years, every 49th and then 50th year in the year of Jubilee, how do they trust God? Give us this day our daily bread. It's an invitation. Follow me, trust me, I will provide for you. I love you. I'm not against you, I am for you. 
All of the rules and regulations up to this point in the book of Leviticus are not to squelch our freedom. They're not to restrict our good times. They're to show us the love of God and to allow us to actually live in freedom. And now in verses 8 through 22, we see freedom in God's gracious provision. In verses 8 through 12, we see freedom from sin. When is the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee pronounced? Notice in verse 9. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. Yom Kippur, Leviticus 16, as we've already looked at. This day of atonement. It's interesting that this then begins the sabbatical year as well as the year of Jubilee. What a day to start this. What's going to come for the next year is reminiscent of, a reminder of, the freedom that you have in me from even your sin. It is your sin that has caused the issues in your own life, the lives of your family, and even the, in the reality of the land. Paul says in Romans 8 that the creation, even the physical planet, groans under the weight of sin. And so on this Day of Atonement, this solemn day when the high priest enters for only the, the only time during the year beyond the veil into the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifice for himself and then for the people, and then the scapegoat is released into the wilderness. This ceremony, this celebration, this somber reality of their, the need for a blood sacrifice to atone for their sins. After their sins have been atoned for, the trumpet is blown and they enter into a full year, and in the case of the year of Jubilee, two years of rest. A reminder, an extended reminder of the freedom from sin that they have. Where else do we get this? Well, cast your mind back, if you would, with me to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. What is the original state of the planet and of Adam and Eve? They are in the Garden of Eden. Are they tilling? Are they harvesting? Are they working? They're working, but they're not laboring. In Genesis 3, one of the curses is that there will now be thorns and thistles and weeds. How many gardeners here this morning are super grateful for that verse? The state of the Garden of Eden was one that needed some cultivation, yes, but it was to go out in the morning, walk up to a tree, pick a lime, a lemon, an orange, a grapefruit, an apple, and any number of fruits that I love. <laughs> That's a joke. Um, right off of the tree and just, and just eat them without all of the arduous process of gardening, pruning and cultivating and uh, um, plowing the land and then weeding and then all fertilizing and all of the things, and all the things that can go wrong. One massive rainstorm can wash out an entire year's crop here on the island, at least potatoes. There's, all things can go wrong. But to live in the Garden of Eden was to wake up every morning and just eat of the fruit. And this year of Sabbath and this year of Jubilee was a reminder of what things used to be like and a reminder of what they're going to be like. Freedom from sin and all of its effects. Freedom from greed. 
verses 13 through 17. We're going to expand on this next Sunday, and I want to take anything away from Luke's sermon next Sunday. But there's a reality here in the year of Jubilee of everything returning back to its default setting, to, really, to, the, to what it was before. In the Jewish system, land was owned by families that needed to be passed on from father to son in perpetuity. This is how they were going to be able to provide for themselves for generations. But it may be through many different realities that there is some poverty, a need to sell, some debts that have been incurred. And so before the year of Jubilee, there could be an exchange of this land. Certainly the crops is what's mainly in view. But this year of Jubilee was an end point. It was a static part of the Jewish calendar that right-sized their economics. So if it was a long time away, the year of Jubilee, then the sale price was greater because more crops would be harvested between now and the year of Jubilee. If there were only three or four years or one or two years from now until the year of Jubilee, the sale price would be much lower because the individual could only perhaps count on one or two harvests before the year of Jubilee. Although arguably, based on the text, verses 21 and 22, that harvest on year uh, 48 was amazing. But the reality is, it it right-sized their economics. Freedom then from greed. All of us seem to want more, more than we need. And so, in the Jewish society, the culture, it was a call to, this is not about hoarding, this is not about tying your identity and your happiness to tangible things, but remember that your joy comes from above, your joy comes from me. And so rather than finding your happiness and your worth and your value in all your stuff, find that in me instead. And so it right-sized how they interacted with each other, even financially. What a beautiful reality in the nation of Israel. Secondarily then, or thirdly under this point, is the freedom from abject poverty. There was built into the system a way in which you would not have to be completely homeless, completely without anything. Poverty is a reality in our human interactions, in our reality, because of sin. And so God builds into the system ways in which poverty, certainly abject poverty, can at least be mitigated. Because I have land, I have something tangible that I can sell. And I also know that at least once a generation, it's coming back to me. There's an end date to this. Even though I sold the farm, I didn't sell the farm, as we would use that phrase. It's, it, it's rented. So I can get some money back, but then every 50th year, that, all that land returns back to me fully. And then lastly, freedom from self-reliance. Notice verses 18 through 22. We like to believe that the state of our life is largely due to us. Because we work hard, because we're intelligent, or at least smarter than most people we know, because we're beautiful, because of all of these things, this is the reason why we have the life that we do. And God builds into the system to say, at least once every seven years for a whole year, you're going to have your reliance on yourself tested because you're going to have to rely on me. 
and then the year of Jubilee, when all of the extra property that you have gained through sale and, and through good business acumen, when all of that goes back to its default setting, and for two years, you're going to have to rely on me, so that the crop that you gather in at the end of the sixth year, you can't sow or harvest on the seventh uh, or the eighth after that, the 50th year, and so you can only sow after that. So it's going to be the ninth year before you actually get any harvest back. For three years, I'm going to have to rely on God. And that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing. And God builds that into the system to remind us that he is the one from who all blessings flow. All good gifts, all gifts come down from the Father of lights, James tells us. And so what a beautiful thing built into the system in Israel, this freedom from self-reliance. That it's not about our intellect or our hard work or our ingenuity or our talents or gifts. Not that we're not supposed to cultivate those things and not that we're not supposed to work hard, but ultimately it is all from above. It's from God. Thirdly then, what is the application of all of this? There is freedom in God's gracious salvation. We're going to go to a few passages this morning as we close. First of all, we are reminded that we have been freed from slavery. Romans chapter 6 and verse 14. Romans chapter 6 and verse 14. As the nation of Israel was reminded every seven years, and certainly every 50 years, that they were freed from slavery by their gracious Heavenly Father, we also have been freed from the slavery No, oh, there we're back. This commercial brought to you by the lav mic. Romans chapter 6 and verse 14, we have been delivered from slavery. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Again, what a beautiful reality. We think holiness is oppressive. Because it finds its way into all of our behaviors, especially our favorite ones. But holiness is not primarily about behavior. Holiness is primarily about affection. Who do we love? And if we love God and believe that he has our best interest in mind and are overwhelmed by his grace, that he would love us enough to become human for us and die for us and rise again for us, if we are overwhelmed by his salvation through Jesus Christ by the Spirit, if we love him, even in a small way, according to the love that he has loved us with, we realize that holiness is not overbearing. Holiness is a joy and delight. And similarly, God's laws are not given to, to oppress us, to cause our lives to be miserable. They're given to us to give us freedom. And the freedom that we have under grace, we're not under law. The law, the, the law that we've been looking at in Leviticus, was intended to show us just how sinful we are. But it could not free us, only God's grace can. And so the law is not given us, or grace is not given to us as a license to sin. Grace is now applied to free us from the necessity of sinning. Prior to God's grace, all we could do was sin. We have this illusion of free will, this illusion of choice. And while we are free to choose, we will always choose sin because that's who we are. And so Paul lays out this case throughout the book of Romans, starting in Romans 6, you were slaves to sin. You thought you were in control. You thought you chose those things to do. 
You thought you and the all time, you were over your sin. I can stop this anytime I want. I'm choosing to do this. And what you fail to realize is no, you were never free. You were always a slave to sin. And so Jesus came to break us out of that slavery, to redeem us from slavery to sin, so that now we are free to follow him, to love him, and to act accordingly. Sin had enslaved us. Jesus Christ frees us if we repent and believe in him. And so we are freed from slavery. Notice we can also be freed from anxiety. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Verses 25 through 34. As I read these verses, make note of how many times the word anxious appears here in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore I tell you, Jesus says, Matthew 6, 25, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, that your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is sown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is not to say that a believer in Jesus Christ, we completely free from fear and worry and anxiety. We still struggle with these things. But it does say, by the grace of God, these things do not need to overwhelm us. Because our greatest fear ought to be judgment by the one who made us. And John says that perfect love casts out fear because of God's love. There is now no longer fear of judgment. And so if we know and are convinced that God our Heavenly Father loves us and has our best interest in mind, regardless of what he brings us through, he is there with us and he has a plan and purpose for it. Nothing in our lives then happens without significance or meaning because it is all by the good and gracious hand of our loving Heavenly Father. And so God invites us through Jesus Christ because of our freedom from slavery and freedom from sin to be also free from anxiety. Notice then the third place, freedom from control, John 10. John 10, verses 27 through 30. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. God calls us into a life that recognizes that he is in control, that submits to him, that worships him. He is the one that calls us to himself. He is the one that leads us, and as we follow his voice, we are exactly where we need to be. There is nothing more freeing than to be exactly in, in, in the will of God. 
Jesus was the most fulfilled human being who ever lived, and he was simultaneously the most submissive human being who ever lived. What does he say repeatedly through in this gospel and throughout the gospels? I only do the will of the Father who sent me. Doing God's will is not restrictive or oppressive. Doing God's will is freeing. Doing God's will, being transformed by the grace of God through Jesus Christ by the Spirit, enables us to fully be how God made us to be. We are only fully human as we are becoming like Jesus Christ. He is the example of what humanity is supposed to be and will one day be through him if we are in him. And so any messaging from our culture or otherwise that says, this will give you freedom, this will self-actualize, this is your authentic self, follow your heart, please, never follow your heart. Jeremiah says, the heart is desperately wicked, who can know it? Following your heart is a bad idea. Freedom comes by being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, the one who made us, knows how we are supposed to be, and calls us back to that through Jesus Christ. And so there is freedom from this notion, this illusion of control, and we rest and submit in God's control in our lives. And then finally, freedom to trust God. Notice in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. Philippians 1, 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I'm sure as we look back over our lives, there are a few chapters we'd like to rewrite. At the very least, there's a few paragraphs in a few of those chapters we'd like some editorial control over. Some of them because of our sinfulness, and others because of suffering and pain. And yet the reality is that our graciously sovereign Heavenly Father is in the heavenlies, has called us to Himself, if we are in Him this morning, through repentance and faith, and is making us into the image of Christ. And everything, Everything that comes into our lives is by his good hand for his purposes. And one day, it'll either all make sense or we won't care. But the reality is this. If we are his, held in his hand and in the Father's hand, John 10, he is bringing us towards Christ-likeness. And what he has begun in us in this life, he is bringing it to completion in the life to come. And so what he started with the nation of Israel, bringing them out of slavery in Egypt, through the wilderness wanderings, and all of that time period that none of them wanted to go through, all of the complaining, the many, many times of complaining, through all of their sin and disbelief and rebellion, God brings them into the promised land, but it's not done there. The promised land is not heaven. Promised land is life in God's economy. The promised land is more comparable in our context to the Christian life, life post-salvation. 
There's battles to be fought. But the war has ultimately been won. And what God started, God always finishes. And as mentioned, God has created the Garden of Eden. We messed it up, and God will recreate it in the end. The parallels between Genesis and Revelation are striking. We can trust him. Through many trials, toils, and snares, I have already come. And yet, God will bring us safely home. And so this morning as we close, what is our response? Are we resting in our freedom in Christ? I've said this numerous times, I'll say it again. We seem to continually struggle with the reality that we are chosen, loved, forgiven, and free in Jesus Christ. Those things are real. They're actually true. We are free in Christ. God the Father loves us, wants what's best for us, and calls us to trust him and walk in his ways. Let's look to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, I thank you this morning for your great grace, goodness, and comfort to us. Father, we struggle by times to believe that you are good. We struggle by times to believe that you know best, to trust you, to believe that we actually are free in Christ, and to believe that that freedom is actually good. We have better ideas. We believe ourselves wiser than you by times. And yet true wisdom is to trust in you, to rest in you, to love you because you first loved us. Your love for us is unquestionable. And so we are called to love you in return. And then to see not just the imperatives, not just the rules and the commands, but Father, to, to feel your heart and to recognize the indicatives that these come from a heart that loves us, wants what's best for us, knows how we best operate, knows that as we have exercised what we believe to be our freedom, it has resulted in fruits of destruction as we read from Romans 6. And so, Father, you call us to yourself, to the way that brings fruits of sanctification and ultimately the fruit of eternal life. Thank you for building in this reality of freedom into the Jewish calendar and, and thereby giving us an example, a picture of freedom in Christ. May we be resting in that today and always. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.